Hello there. Welcome back to the Bet on Yourself podcast. This is season two's episode number eight already. I'm really excited about this one. This is weaving together a lot of interesting conversations I've been having with some of my clients recently. And I think this applies to a lot of us largely right now because so many of us are in periods of pivot. So today we're going to be talking about communication for collaboration and advancement. So some of our goals we can accomplish on our own, but most of them, the most meaningful ones and the ones that take us the furthest involve some kind of collaboration with our teams, our managers, the people who have stakes in our lives and our decisions. So today we're gonna talk about some of the best practices for how we make these bigger goals happen when we're collaborating with others. So we're going to discuss three main things. First is knowing what to ask for. What is it that we want? What is bringing us the most joy and opportunity? Second will be about identifying what's holding us back, what's um, inhibiting us from getting the help that we need. And third is how do we ask for what we need, especially when we have little authority or we need to get buy-in from some difficult people. We all have a couple of those that we have to interact with. So I think it would be really powerful if as we're listening to this episode, maybe you had a specific goal in mind, maybe one that you're a little shy to say out loud, but you can't quite get out of your head. It might scare you because it's outside of your normal habits or would disrupt how people normally think of you, but maybe it's stuck in your head because it is so closely tied to what you really want and value in life. It's pulling you forward. You can't get out of your mind. So we're going to talk about how to take some action on it and actualize that joy that you desire because you deserve it. So some examples here, both big and small, maybe you want to get a promotion or maybe you want to take on a big client account or you're needing a letter of recommendation for grad school or just inviting somebody to be a a guest on your podcast. (laughs) That's a, a current example of mine. So When you value something so much that you're not only willing, but driven to make it happen, there is two emotions that happen. And Ben Horowitz talks about this in his book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which I quote on a weekly basis, where he describes the two emotions that entrepreneurs feel are terror and euphoria, often little in between. And I think that's true for anyone, whether you see yourself as an entrepreneur or not, If you're going after something really big, you're going to have maybe simultaneously these feelings of both terror and euphoria. So what makes it worth it? What makes us facing both the terror uh, in the hopes of getting that euphoria of accomplishment? First, it's in finding fulfillment. We all want to have fulfillment in our work and in our life, and that requires incorporating meaning into our work and relationships. That often also requires involving other people to take it beyond just our circle of influence. So Tony Robbins said something I think really applies here. And he said, not all goals will inspire enthusiasm since some tasks are necessary, but inherently boring. But when we talk about how to manifest anything you want and how to get anything you want in life, we're talking about goals that embody your passions that define you. Passions that define you. I like that. When you're able to prioritize your workload around outcomes that inspire you, everything you do takes on new meaning, even those mundane tasks. Not only is it possible to get what you want in life, but when you understand the art and practice of manifesting, you can learn how to get anything you want in life. I really like that. And if you want more on manifesting, he is a great resource on that. So 
This really got me thinking about what holds us back from getting what we want in life. And I think I've identified three main culprits. I think there's complacency, there's fear, and there's a sense of lack of control. So what do we do about complacency? First, recognize that if you want something that is directly tied to your core values, it is inherently worth the effort. Give yourself permission to move from good to great. A lot of times complacency comes out of maybe even just feeling guilty of even wanting more. Do I deserve that? There are so many people who don't have what I already have. So what we really want to do is give ourselves permission to take action to get to the levels of achievement that you dream of. That w- and honestly, that will not happen passively. This is going to take some effort and permission. And sometimes that first step is giving yourself that permission that it's worth the effort, that you deserve it, that you're worthy of it. And that in doing so, you're going to be able to lift others up around you. So how do you test yourself for if you're stuck in this zone of complacency? Ask yourself, one, are you doing just enough that you feel content with what you're doing, but are not, not enough that you're proud? Are you taking the action outside of your comfort zone required to get you to where you really want to be? Second, has your past growth been only small and incremental? Maybe that's the comfort zone you've been in and it needs to be disrupted a little bit. Can you disrupt your status quo enough to realize the dreams that will bring you ultimate joy? Third, recognize that your comfort zone is a false sense of security. It will rob you actually of the chance to really excel. And yes, harder roads lead to more failures. That's true. But ultimately, these harder roads also lead you to more success. It's actually the exact same path, I'm afraid. So we have to get okay with with this challenging road. And we're going to come back to this concept a little later. I think that's really, really important. So The second thing that holds us back from what we really want is fear. So test yourself for fear by asking, are you shy or hesitant to ask others to collaborate with or empower you? Are you worried that you'll inconvenience them or what they might think of you for even making the request? And do you have self-limiting behaviors like not even asking the question at all, not even giving them an opportunity to say yes? I've definitely been you know, exhibited all of these behaviors before, trust me. So when I was thinking about this one, about fear, I um, remembered this book. It's really short. I think it's only like 75 pages long, but um, the title really caught my attention and it's called Go for the No. I just love that title. The concept is that you can you should set no goals for yourself. Most of us set yes goals, things we're going to accomplish, number of things we're going to do today. But actually, we get so much bigger results and we can even exceed our own expectations if we set no goals. So in this book, the authors say that yes is the destination and no is how you get there. Okay, this is how you stretch. Let's dig into it. So think about it. Once you accomplish a yes goal, you stop. You don't go any further. Maybe you move on to a different goal. For example, if you wanted to make two sales this month, once you've reached that, you're done. You celebrate it. You go out for a drink with your friends, but you don't really push yourself um, necessarily to make more sales that month. But if you your goal was a no goal, and for example, you wanted to keep going to the point that you had received 20 no's, for example, in the process of trying to get those 20 no's, you might exceed that those two sales. You might 
maybe make 15. You, d- you didn't even know that was possible. So this is how you exceed your deliverable targets. A no goal keeps you from, uh, a no goal keeps you going to the outset, the extent of your limits of what you thought was even possible. So in the book, they outline that, for example, 44% of people give up after the very first no. I think it's human nature. None of us like to hear it. It feels a little uncomfortable. Maybe you start to doubt yourself if if this was a good idea in the first place. But of those who keep going, 22% additional people give up after just the second, 14 additional percent give up after the third, 12 after the fourth. That means that in total, 92% of the people give up before the fifth no. Now that does not surprise me because getting five no's to something doesn't sound like my idea of fun. However, the majority of people, over 60% of people actually say no the first six times before they say yes. Now this book is about sales in particular. So maybe you've seen a product or somebody recommended it to you and you, you don't bite until about the sixth time you're exposed to something. But that means that by giving up before that sixth time, we're missing out on the majority of the yeses that would come our way. So our emotional reactions to a no need to change. It isn't negative. And yes, it isn't exactly a positive feeling, but the no's move you towards your goal, not away from it when we know where we're going. When your ask is done right, it can get you closer. Now think about this. Even like kids get this right. Have you um, ever given into your kids or your nieces or nephews because they've just asked so many times so enthusiastically and you can just see how much joy your yes would bring them? They can really wear you down. Also, my puppy is very, very good at this. (laughs) Just a little whimper or a look or a circling back over and over again does get me off the couch and playing with him. (laughs) So we adults can kind of channel back to that kind of energy. So in a more applicable Uh, example, think about a client conversion. So for example, a client of mine was setting some OKRs this week, and he was asking me if he should be measuring his input versus his output to trying to get uh, new clients converted into his sales process. I thought that was a really interesting question. So thinking about setting a no goal actually helps you focus on what energy you're putting into it so that you can get the larger returns that maybe you would have been even too intimidated to set for yourself as a goal. So asking for help can be an empowering rather than a diminishing experience, and it can be an opportunity to uplift others and validate them by offering assistance through their expertise and influence. It feels good to be asked to help. I'm getting requests now to speak at conferences or to come into leadership team meetings, doing offsite trainings, And it means a lot to me that somebody saw an expertise and thinks I have something of value to add. So I I gladly say yes when I possibly can. And I'm on the other side of this a lot now in starting my own company. For example, I've got a book launch coming up. I've got this podcast. I'm trying to line up season three guests right now. And a lot of those involve asking some of the people who mean the most to me for some favors. And I know that the most valuable thing they have is their expertise and their time. And so I sometimes get a little shy before I um, reach out with a request. So I have tried to find the very top of my Rolodex pyramid. I challenged myself of being like, okay, let's find out where the ceiling is with these relationships. Let's go to the fanciest, (laughs) most important people that I've got. And what I discovered was they all said yes. What I thought was the very top of what I could possibly request of my Rolodex um, wasn't even close to the top. I I didn't get to that point of getting those 20 no's. 
I've got at the most three people said, I would love to do that, but now's not the right time. Someone was going on maternity leave. Another has just uh, started a, a new role at a new company. So they said, please come back to me. That's not even a no. So what I feared most was people being like, oh, how disrespectful of my time. They actually saw it as a validation of me really valuing their time and expertise and wanting to channel it in a way that would help a lot of people. So in a I've equivalently really only applied to safety schools. <laughs> I didn't have this, uh, this Ivy League dream that was um, a, a real stretch. So people want to help. That's really my takeaway over the last year or two. They are far more generous and willing to help than I ever expected or gave them credit for. That was how self-limiting of that behavior, right? So the third thing that can hold us back is just not knowing how to ask, how to ask for what we really want. So here's a couple of tips on how to set yourself up for a yes. And I learned this because when working for Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt and Marissa Meyer over the uh, 15 years that I ran their offices, I received a lot of requests. Here's some best practices to convert a yes. First, ask specifically and have that right out front. If you're doing this in email, especially have that be first and then back up with the other information. So describe exactly what you want define precisely what you need, why you need it, and when you need it by. It's amazing how many people don't share a deadline. <laughs> be clear on why they are the one that you need it from. And then that empowers them to give an easy yes or to delegate it to someone else if they feel like someone could deliver that either faster or better than they can. Second pro tip here, ask someone who can actually help you. You wouldn't believe how many people are asking Eric Schmidt for something that would be handled by IT. He's not the guy. Don't go, don't go straight to the top. So think about who has the time, the resources, expertise, and energy to say yes to this and share that with them. Share with them the assessment that you've done that you are recognized. They're really busy, but here's um, all the reasons why this would be easy. And then, um, we're going to come to how to make this an easy lift for them in tip number four. But before we get to that, tip number three is really in this ask, create value for the person that you're asking. So this is about finding out how you can make this ask mutually beneficial for both of you. So they are naturally incentivized to help you. Um, so really call out for them. How does this align with uh, align with their own values and mission? How does this move the needle forward? Maybe it exposes them to a bigger audience if you're inviting them on your podcast. Or um, if they had a book coming out recently, you want to help publicize that, for example. And then tip number four, back to this, is do the heavy lifting for them. I cannot tell you how many executives complain to me about these requests they'd love to say yes to, but it would be far too much work. So if you are the requester, cue everything up that they might need in order to say yes. For example, I will be teaching a master's course in Barcelona this summer, and I thought it would be really valuable to bring in some experts beyond just my own experience on the particular topics that I'm going to be teaching. So I looked at my Rolodex and I thought about the people that I've worked with who exhibit these kind of leadership qualities and best practices that I want to give to my students. And so I reached out to them, and these are people who are very important, very busy, um, surely get a lot of requests, and I really tried to do all the work for them. So I gave them the specific topic that I wanted their expertise on. I'm writing up all the proposed questions and queuing it up so it needs no preparation or research on their part in advance. 
I'm really just asking for 45 minutes of their time where they can share something extemporaneously that might be of value on that topic. And do you know what happened? I mean, really, this is, I, I'm teaching 15 classes. I, I invited 15 guest lecturers. I got a 100% yes rate. These are like the fanciest, busiest people that I know. Now, I'm not saying I always get 100% yes rate, but I think in doing, following these steps, it really made it easier for them to say yes. And one person even moved a board meeting around to come and teach in this class. I'm really, yes, it's true. I have a very um, amazing Rolodex of people who, who are just incredibly generous and kind. So even if you don't get a yes right, right away, my fifth tip is to follow up adapt to initial feedback given, if any, put in the work that they requested and return. So that's going to be indicate to them that it really matters to you, that this has long-term value. It's not just sort of a flash in the pan idea. And honestly, this is a way that I've often tested requests that come in. I would purposely sit on it. You know, when someone was asking Eric for a big favor, for example, this is a way I tested if it really, really mattered, if it was a high value ask for them. Uh, I would just sit on it for a bit and see if they would come back and offer a way to make it an easier and lighter lift. So keep that in mind. Okay, so the second part is how do we get what we want if we're coming with little to no former formal power or authority? This has been uh, the case in my career for almost always. <laughs> I'm always managing up to very powerful, fancy people. So how do you do that effectively? So I was thinking about Joseph Nye. He in introduced the concept of soft power and hard power in the late 80s. And this is a, his book, his research and expertise were around international politics. So yes, I'm trying to use my university degrees. Thank you, mom and dad. I studied international studies and uh, was introduced to Joseph Nye's work there. But these concepts absolutely apply in the business world, I think. So Nye defines power as the ability to influence the behavior of others and to get the outcomes you want. We all want power, don't we? It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We want to create the world that we that we dream of, that are aligned with our values and, and the um, communities that we want to live in. So there are several ways we can achieve this power. First is there's hard power, and this is kind of around carrots and sticks. Carrots are the way that we induce them with maybe payments, like if you're a boss and you're offering a performance bonus, or with sticks. We coerce our teammates with threats. For example, you could be fired if you don't perform at this level. For most of us and for most of our asks, they're coming from a place of soft power. This is almost always carrots. So this is how you're getting others to want the outcomes that you want. You co-opt people rather than coerce them. Same for nation states, same for individual contributors. So uh, this comes down to three things. First is culture. Focus your asks and help the person see the vision for the fact that you're building a similar vision around where we want to go together. Second is reminding them of the values that underlie it. What we're doing, making, creating really matters to the greater good. And third is policies. Reflect on how collaboration is how we get things done here. This is how I'm going to be helping you move forward and you're helping me and really creating this one for all sort of feeling to it. So management and individual contributors need to know when to use which power. 
Most of us have to perfect these soft powers of persuasion, collaboration, uniting us under shared values and passions. So how do we tailor this to the individual and especially the difficult ones? I know some of you out there are like, oh no, this thing that I really, really want that would bring me so much joy and satisfaction. Oh, I've got this really difficult person I would have to get on board. Don't worry. I have some great pro tips for you, and this is coming to you from Adam Grant. He wrote an uh, article for Harvard Business Review titled Persuading the Unpersuadable, which is adapted in part from his new book, Think Again. And Adam has several actionable pro tips of helping us deal with the most difficult characters in our life. Don't worry. Okay, I got you. So I did this a lot in my Silicon Valley career, working with some of the most powerful people in the world. My job was often to persuade and guide the brightest business minds in the world. How could I do that, especially in the earliest years of my career? These are some tried and tested techniques that worked for me then with some of the most challenging personalities. Goodness knows in tech, we've got a lot of big personalities. So when I read Adam's article, it really resonated with me of some of the best practices that I've um, developed over time as well. So when asking up or making a request of someone more senior to you, um, or they can be perceived as the unpersuadable sometimes. And there are four common barriers to changing someone's mind. Adam says there are four main characteristics to look out for and to plan for because the way we get a yes out of these people is very different depending on which difficult personality they have. So these four characteristics are arrogance, stubbornness, narcissism, and disagreeableness. Any of that resonate with you? Anyone in your life that might fit into one of these categories, maybe not every day, but sometimes, how do we get a yes out of them, especially when we're junior to them? He has a solution for each. Here we go. First, arrogance or overconfident. So these are the people who don't know what they don't know. They think all their ideas are great. They think all their jokes are funny. (laughs) So If what you need is to request a change, maybe there's a policy in your team that doesn't work anymore, it hasn't scaled with the company or what you need most, or maybe a project approach that isn't quite going the way that they had planned, how do we get them on board with a change? So Adam suggests don't call them out directly. This will only encourage them to get defensive and the conversation might stop before it even gets going. So pro tip, what do you do? You do enable them to recognize the gaps in their own understanding. And an easy way to approach this without triggering that defensiveness is to ask questions and create a collaborative dialogue. Um, This is where we want to start with maybe questions like, or statements like, I wonder if, or could you walk me through your thoughts on, or maybe say, I'd love your advice on something I've observed. That feels collaborative and doesn't trigger defensiveness for arrogant or overconfident people. Second is stubbornness. So these are leaders and people who think that their values uh, and views are set in stone. They're not interested in changing their mind. They are really, really sure that they're right. (laughs) Okay, anyone like that in your life? So first, ponder what are those core beliefs? Do they see their successes and failures as determined primarily by internal forces, like their own effort and choices, or by external forces like luck and fate? Normally with stubborn people, they tend to believe in internal control. They think the outcomes are subject to their own will, and they are not going to be persuaded by forceful arguments or demands. That does not work with them. 
So what do we do instead? We do bring them in at an early stage of an idea and allows them to shape the final stages of it so they have a sense of ownership. Now, this might not actually be the case. You might have, you know, exactly your action plan and where you want to get them to, but you need them to help help them feel like a part of that brainstorming process. So bring in a pitch idea and do an active brainstorming session together. So Adam suggests that asking questions instead of giving answers can overcome some people's defensiveness. You're not telling your boss what to think or do. You're giving her some control over the conversation, inviting her to share her thoughts and ideas, asking questions like, what if, and could we, that might spark some creativity and make this leader curious about what's possible and feel part of the process and a sense of ownership over that. So the third difficult personality is narcissism. So narcissistic leaders believe that they are superior and special, and they don't take kindly to being told that they're wrong. But with careful framing, you could coach them back into acknowledgement that they might be flawed or at least the concept of being fallible. (laughs) So what is it? It's really important to realize that uh, narcissists actually have a high but unstable self-esteem. I actually think there's a lot of compassion we can give them when we realize that instability maybe is causing that kind of insecurity and narcissistic tendencies. So what do we do in this situation? We do want to appeal to their desire to be admired. Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all want to be admired? It's it's not a bad thing. So praising people in an area different from the one that you hope to change is key here. So for example, in the article, Adam suggests that if you're trying to get a narcissistic leader to rethink a bad choice, it's a mistake to say that you admire their decision-making skills, right? You're better off commending her creativity because then you encourage, you you praise, and you get them in that mindset of like, oh, you're a creative problem solver. I'd really love your thoughts on this. Um, So you're not challenging the areas in which they're insecure. I think that's a really good tip. And fourth of these challenging personalities is just general disagreeableness. (laughs) There's some people out there who are just a bit grumpy all the time. Um, So these are people who are energized by conflict, They love a good argument. They love to kind of debate and um, they kind of seek it out. So what do we do with people like that? We do challenge them on a core concept. This is the opposite of an approach you would take with some of these earlier mentioned personalities. You want to tempt them with a way to expand their influence in that area and show a willingness to fight for your ideas and to change your own mind. Don't show weakness or a lack of backbone. They will not respect you or engage. So really use that to your advantage, the fact that they like to argue and debate and think through, showing a willingness to stand up for ideas, but being willing to change your own mind. It will encourage them to do the same. Okay, so those are some extreme examples. Hopefully we've got that out of the way. If what you were worried about most was somebody who's really difficult to deal with, um, hopefully that's resolved some of that. But now let's look for what works on a normal day with a normal person, with a reasonable colleague in a day-to-day situation and how we can manage both up to those more powerful than us and out to some of our colleagues and peers. So I really love the work by Dr. Nasheder Solheim. She wrote a book, The Leadership Pin Code, which I highly recommend. And in that book, she shares a unique and proven framework for creating the impact and influence we need in our daily work. She presents three simple, simple keys for um, what we want in really generally every interaction um, while maintaining positive relationships. And this is how every leader and individual contributor can inspire trust, 
navigate conflict, and create value every day. So she frames these three steps as the ABCs for building rapport and trust. So A is for approach and advanced preparation. I cannot overemphasize A here. So many people skip this step and it makes it really hard to say yes to collaborating with them. So first, basics. Find out when's the best time to talk. If somebody's in the middle of a, a deadline or is really distracted by something stressful going on in their life, now is not the right time. Set yourself up for success by just asking that simple question. Um, get some tips on communication. Maybe go to their assistant and find out what's persuasive or if now is a good time, what mood they're in today. People used to come to me all the time asking that about the uh, executives that I worked with. Or maybe go to a colleague that you've seen that has a really strong relationship with that person and run your idea past him or her first and get some tips on how it might be received and tailor it accordingly. Uh, build some relationships before you need something. So many people don't do this. You need to build up your know, like, and trust factor. This is your friendship currency. So for key stakeholders in your life, really do an advanced approach here. Don't wait until you have a big ask. Uh, make sure that you've spent some time investing in, in this relationship. And then think about what's the best room, quote unquote, for this conversation. I know we're not all in rooms together at the moment in the pandemic or maybe even in the future. So are you, if you're not in a physical meeting, should this be an email? Should this be a phone call? Should this be a, a Zoom meeting? So for example, a, a client of mine, he was preparing to have a really hard feedback conversation with one of his senior leaders. And he asked me what would be the best way to do this because they're not physically in a room together. Normally he would just call her in his office. But we decided the best approach for her particularly was if he sent an email with a highline summary preparing her that they were about to have a conversation hard, a difficult conversation. And we did that and we sent it literally just five minutes before. So there wouldn't be a lot of stewing time, but he had noticed in the past that if she was blindsided by something, she became really defensive and he want, but then she would always calm down and they could have a productive conversation. So we wanted to cue up that opportunity, respect that she needs some processing time and cue them both up for success where they could get over the little bit of shock and have a productive conversation about next steps and how they were going to move forward towards, um, both of them being happier in the process. So for example, I have seen in the past a great CEO have to get on stage and um, share with the company a policy change that he knew wouldn't be received really well. People were going to be really sad to hear it. But what he did is anticipated that and he had pre-written up an email summarizing the message he was just giving. And he did that because he knew that it's really hard for people to hear the details and to remember all the facts when you're having an emotional re reaction to it. So he had summarized it. So the second he came off stage, he hit an email, hit send to the whole company so that then they could get over this emotional response and then be presented with the facts and things to really set the stage for what was and wasn't happening right now. I think that was a really, really good example. So think about that. If you're delivering some hard news, those might be some really good steps to take. Think about how it's going to be received. This leads us to B of our ABCs, and B is for body language and behavior. So be really thoughtful about how what is going on in your mind shows up in your body language. If you're making a big ask and you're in the room or on Zoom, do you look intimidated? Do you look stressed out or are you relaxed and confident? And this really is often about preparing your mindset as much as your message. So think about ways that you can give off a confident air, but 
with complete open energy. Set a really purposeful tone for the conversation. And that gives the other person permission to relax into it as well. And this brings us to the C of our ABCs, which is for conversation. You want to show empathy and build trust through curiosity, asking their opinions, being really open to their ideas, keep an open mind about what they might want to share or suggest. Second is to summarize what they've said to be sure that you understood it and to indicate that you're paying attention, validate that they are being heard and they're not wasting their time with you. Uh, these are some of the same skills for managing up to your boss, for example, and managing out to your colleagues if you're asking for collaboration or permissions. For example, if you want a promotion, let's say, and you want to join a new team or a new project, what are the team's key priorities and initiatives? Talk about how your skills fit into that context and how you can contribute and add value there. So this gets everyone on the same page. It's a win-win. And that makes it about problem solving for the group rather than just about self-promotion or your humble brags or getting people confused that this isn't about meeting anyone else's need. Really set it up as a win-win. So hopefully this has inspired you to take some, some steps towards something that really matters to you. So you can invite collaboration and open doors for yourself to accomplish that. I really, really believe in the power of setting some no goals. I'm gonna challenge myself to do that even more this week. Set yourself up for some, some successes that are far outside of what you would have given your permission, yourself permission to, to seek out otherwise. So I hope that you will go out there and make a big bet on yourself, set a no goal, and I would love to see how it goes. Please share your experiences, your comments, and send this podcast to anyone that you think might benefit from it. Maybe they've got a big ask or a big dream coming up. So with that, I hope you go out and make a big bet on yourself. Until next week. <laughs>